This morning's reading is found in Matthew 23, verse 37, to chapter 24, verse 3. And that can be found in the Pew Bibles on page 829. Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray together. I am so uh, grateful this morning again, Father, uh, that uh, you teach us uh, so clearly that it is your word that has the power, Not, not men. I am so grateful today for your jealousy, your holy jealousy for the honor of your son, Jesus Christ. Because it is a foundation of hope for me, not only for my own sake, but also for the sake of those who hear me this morning. I thank you that what you will accomplish this morning through your word is not limited by my understanding of what you will accomplish. It is not limited by any of Uh, our understandings of what you might accomplish. You are God, and we are not, and this is your word, and you have not called us here to speculate or to edit your word, but to worship you over it. And we do that this morning through the Lord Jesus Christ, and we believe that he is still the seeker and savior of the lost, And we ask, Father, now that for his glory and your joy and the eternal welfare of all who hear, that what would be heard above all else this morning is the glory of Jesus Christ. And that for those who are not yet joined to Christ, that you in your great mercy would cause them this morning to be born again to a living hope through Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. Well, part two of my story from D.C. is uh, what I would do when I was there for those extra two days is I would, uh, I would uh, study, and I was actually studying Matthew 24, and I'd work until after lunch, and then in the afternoon I'd go out and I'd go sightseeing. <clears throat> and it was really interesting because I didn't expect my studying 
Matthew 24 to have anything to do with what I was doing in Washington, but they, what I found in my surprise is that they were totally connected because in the morning I would be thinking about and reading about and, and just pondering and puzzling over uh, the strength of what Jesus says to his disciples here in Matthew 24 about the destruction of the temple. And then in the afternoon, I would, I would walk around and ride my bike around the most sacred buildings in our culture. And one afternoon, I, I came out of the metro, and I was walking <clears throat> down the street, and I was uh, waiting at a crosswalk, and I just happened to look up across the street, and I noticed that on uh, opposing corners across the street from me, on one side was the National Archives, where the Constitution is. And on the other side of the street is the Department of Justice. And I was like, wow! <clears throat> and then, because I was reading Matthew 24 and thinking about it, I thought, what would it be like to watch invading armies burn those buildings to the ground? And then the other afternoon... See the cheery thoughts you have when you go on study leave? <laughs> and then the other afternoon, I was riding my bike uh, down to the mall. I rode past Lincoln Memorial and then up Capitol Hill and uh, by, the, by the Washington Monument, up Capitol Hill. And uh, I parked, stopped in front of the Supreme Court, which is right across the street from the Capitol. And I, I just kept thinking, what would, it, what would it be like to our culture to see these structures destroyed. And I couldn't escape the thought. You see, because Jesus' words to his disciples in verse 2 were ringing in my ears. You see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And I thought, what would the, what would the impact be upon, upon me as an American citizen or upon our culture if these sacred structures that I was looking at were destroyed. And really, you know, for, for, for the disciples, I mean, I'm just trying to help you feel how shocking what Jesus says here might be, to just get a taste of it. Because really, f- for them, for the disciples, the destruction of the temple is like the destruction of all those things wrapped up together. And even more so, because this was the place where God had promised to dwell. This was way more problematic than the destruction of the capital. No wonder then that the disciples at the end of chapter 23, after they, well, well, after they hear Jesus say to the scribes and Pharisees, your house is now left to you desolate. He's talking about the temple. And Jesus leaves the temple and he never comes back to the temple. No wonder then that the disciples say, hey, uh, Lord, could you just, just, isn't that awesome? Look, look back at the temple. Look at how beautiful it is. How could you possibly dismiss that and turn your back on that? No wonder, then, that they're even more stunned by his promise in verse 2 that one day the temple is going to be utterly destroyed. And it is ultimately destroyed. Uh, in 70 AD by the Roman army. But the destruction, as we'll see next week, begins earlier. Okay, so the temple's going to be destroyed. So what? Why should we care? 
And what, honestly, right? This is the threshold question that, that we all have to address. I'm not interested in talking to you about history. What I'm interested in talking to you about is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this text is inspired by the Holy Spirit to display the work of Jesus Christ. It's not just a map for what's going to happen in the first century and what happens, what's the difference between what happens in the first century and what happens near the end of the age when Jesus returns. That's, there's, a, there's a greater point. There are some details there that matter. But above all, this text is meant to reveal who Jesus Christ is to us. So yeah, it matters to understand what what the temple's destruction is about. It does matter to us and our lives in 2014 in Central Florida. There's a lot more to these questions than meets the eye. And I believe that if we follow them, they are going to lead us straight into the heart of the gospel. And so that's what I long for us to do together over the next couple of weeks. But to understand the meaning of the temple's destruction, we need to understand the meaning of the temple's design. You cannot understand the significance of the temple's destruction, which is what Jesus is talking about in verse 2 and later on in the chapter, as we'll see next week. You You cannot appreciate the significance of that and its relationship to the gospel without first understanding what the design, the meaning of the temple's design was. What was the temple? What did God use the temple for? Why did it exist? Those are the questions we're going to think about this morning. And they're foundational to understanding the meaning of the temple's destruction. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to do some Bible background. And we're going to look first at the promise of the temple's design. And then we're going to look secondly at the fulfillment of the temple's design in Jesus Christ. And both are about the gospel. So let's think first about the promise of the temple's design. Okay, Matthew 24, think about where we are in the story of Jesus' ministry. We're at the very end of his public ministry. And so here at the very end of his public ministry, he's talking about the destruction of the temple. Well, you know, it's not the first time that he talked about the destruction of the temple. He does so... Uh, very significantly, at the beginning of his public ministry as well. I mean, I know the temptation for us is to think, what in the world does this have to do with the gospel? We're talking about the temple. Well, Jesus thought it had a lot to do with the gospel. Turn with me to John chapter 2. And let me show you what I mean. Page 887 in your pew Bible. Now, what's happening, if you start... What, what happens, starting at verse 13, is that, is that John is recounting an event that happened at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, and it was the cleansing of the temple. John records the, this first cleansing of the temple that, the, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not record. And this is the cleansing of the temple that happens at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And he comes in, and you can see, starting at verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple... He found those who were selling oxen and and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple 
with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That's from Psalm uh, 69. So then, so having done that now, he has provoked a reaction of the Jewish leaders. And so in verse 18, they approach him and they challenge him. And they say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? They're saying, what are your credentials? What gives you the right to cleanse the temple? Now look at Jesus' answer. Excuse me. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, they think think he's talking about the architectural temple. The Jews then said, which is a totally reasonable conclusion, by the way. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Something, that's something really important to understand. Because what Jesus is saying At the beginning of his public ministry, he's giving a thesis statement, if you will, an interpretation. This is how he interprets his ministry. He has a temple ministry. He is a temple. And really what we're going to see his ministry show us is that he is the temple. And he is saying something not just about his own ministry, but he is also necessarily then interpreting all the Old Testament theology of the temple. He is, he's, he's looking both ways. He's, he is claiming that all of that is pointing toward him and finds its meaning in him, that he is the fulfillment of everything that the temple was designed to do. Now, that's the tip of an absolutely massive iceberg. It's so significant. You see, we, don't, we cannot, we don't, we're not at liberty to say, oh, this temple imagery is not for us, because Jesus is saying, hey, if you want to understand who I am and what I'm about, I have to communicate to you in temple terms. So that means that the Old Testament temple and all it represented and the way it was designed and everything that God commanded happen there has a teaching purpose, not just for Israel, but for all the nations. Jesus describes himself in these temple terms, my friends, because the temple's design, and this is the thesis this morning, if you will, because the temple's design is the gospel's storyline. The temple was designed and built to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the significance of what Jesus is saying, not only to Israel, but to the entire world. And in the temple's design, what's happening is that God is laying his heart and mind bare. He is letting the world see, first Israel and through Israel the world, see 
He's like, it's almost like he's turning his heart and mind inside out so that we can see his ways and see his thoughts. What are the purposes that God has in the world? What is he doing in history? The structure, the design of the temple is all framed to show us the heart of God. I know when I first became a Christian, people told me, don't start, you know, I realized I needed to read the Bible. You guys have heard me tell this story, I think, in different settings before. And, and I, had, I had many wise friends say, you got to start with the Gospels, Francis. And I said, no way. The Bible is a book. It begins at Genesis. I'm starting on page one. Get out of my way. <clears throat> Crashed and burned in Leviticus, big time. Because nobody had ever told me that Leviticus is in the Bible to teach me the Gospel. But it is. All the tabernacle imagery, all the temple imagery, everything, the priesthood, the sacrifices, it's all teaching me. Jesus, it's all. You know, you can't read. You can't read unless you know the alphabet first. You can't read unless you know vocabulary first. You can't read unless you know grammar first. Friends, you know we saw last month how Genesis 3.15, and I'm not going to go back there because I'll get too excited and we'll stay there for an hour. But remember how we saw last month and how Genesis 3.15 shows us that the only reason human history continues after the fall, the only reason, is for the revelation of Jesus Christ in history. And God, that says something to us very important about history itself. Because what that means is that history, God is announcing from the beginning of the Bible that let me tell you what the plot line of history is. There are going to be a lot of things that happen and you're going to get distracted by all this other stuff. But there is one spinal cord of my intention running its way through all of history, and it is the revelation of this triumphant seed of the woman who we know to be Jesus Christ. So that's God's plan and purpose from the beginning. And as history unfolds, you have to understand that within the Bible's frame of reference, God is not a spectator of history. He's the author of it. Which means that the history of Israel and what God works into the history of Israel isn't just full of things that happen, but things that, plan, things that God has planned. In order for the ministry of Jesus Christ to be intelligible, in order for us to be able to understand the gospel, in order for the world to understand the significance of God's sending of his son into the world, certain categories of thought And principles need to be put into place, foundational things, vocabulary, alphabet, spelling, grammar, all of it of the gospel. These building blocks need to be in place. And so, friends, in John 2, Jesus tells us that God used the temple to teach Israel and the world the alphabet of the gospel and the vocabulary of the gospel, and the grammar of the gospel. The temple is much more than a building, according to Jesus. The temple, the physical architectural temple, is much more like a script. It's like a dress rehearsal for a drama. It's not just a building. It's a drama that is being depicted. 
And in that drama, or in the script of that drama, there are two big plot lines that the temple tells that that are the gospel storyline. And the plot line number one, the first plot line that the temple teaches us about is that paradise has been lost. And the second plot line is how paradise is going to be regained. That's why the temple exists, to teach us those two things. So let's think first about paradise lost. And and I'm just going to call it the gospel's bad news, because that's why the temple exists. It exists to teach us the the gospel's bad news and the gospel's good news together. But we got to think about the bad news first, how paradise has been lost. I want you to think about the temple's physical architecture, which I know you woke up this morning so eager to do. You bounded out of bed. So there's basically three parts to the temple structure. There's the temple courts around the building, and then the building itself basically has two parts, the holy place and the holy of holies. You with me so far? Now, in the holy of holies is the Ark of the Covenant. That's where God's uh, glory cloud, the Shekinah glory dwelt. That's where God, the, te- uh, the, the Old Testament says God is enthroned. He's personally present in the Holy of Holies, but there's a veil that separates the Holy of Holies from the holy place, and the priests can only go into the first room, the holy place. And what happens is Israel is built around the temple, so in the center, it's almost like a solar system. It, it, it really is. It's a spiritual solar system. In the center of that solar system is the massive presence of God's glory dwelling in the midst of his people. He's right there. It's awesome. He's present in the midst of his people. And yet, at the very same time that he's present, he is also almost virtually infinitely distant from them. There's massive tension in the temple. You see, because God's presence is there, but access to his presence is very severely restricted. There's only one person in all of Israel who ever can enter the Holy of Holies without being struck dead. And he can only enter the Holy of Holies on one day of each year. And he can't enter the Holy of Holies without blood. First, for his own sins. And then, a second time for the sins of the people. And that's the high priest. So there's this incredible tension. God is near. He is in the midst of his people. And yet because of their sin, he is not accessible. And when you think about the interior of the temple, it's very interesting. When you read 1 Kings 6 and the description of the way the temple's interior was decorated, it's very interesting. Because on the doors... And the cedar paneling in the holy place, the walls were decorated with open flowers, with gourds, 
with palm trees and with cherubim that were carved on. And what? why? Why those things? Why those things? Well, those, friends, are echoes of Eden. They are a reminder that when the priest goes into the temple, look at what has been lost. Remember why this temple exists. Remember why God is distant. It's very poignant. The the temple's very architecture preached the message loud and clear. Paradise has been lost because of man's sin. The greatest treasure that men could ever have, men squandered and forfeited by their sin, And the only path of return to God would be a bloody one, a path of substitutionary death. There is no compatibility, this architecture taught, between the sinfulness of men and the holiness of God. None. Now, I want you to think about that and how that connects with our own lives. Because the reason the living God made the temple was not just to teach Israel, but to teach us. And the reality of paradise lost, if you will, that, that the temple taught Israel is the same lesson that we need to learn. Because you know what? This, the temple teaches us the lesson that we need to learn, which is the, the meaning of loss. The ultimate meaning of loss. Because, because in, in demonstrating that God is present and yet distant that he is near, and yet far, and cannot be accessed by man's achievement, that is teaching us something as well, because the same things are true about God in this room and in our lives. To lose him, to not have access to him, to not be able to enjoy his presence, to be, because of our sin, alienated and estranged from him, friends, this is the loss of all losses. He is the loss of all losses. He, to not not be able to enjoy fellowship with God, the very purpose for which we were made, is the tragedy beneath and around and above every other tragedy and loss we experience. We don't think that way, but that is what God... God wants us to think that way because that's what's true. We think that we can do really well in life and that we can get by when God is at the periphery of our lives, but we have safety and security in the center. We think that we can do okay and that we're, that we're well when God is at the periphery of our lives, but sexual freedom is at the core. Or when God is at the periphery of our lives, but our career is doing exactly what we want it to do. When God is at the periphery of our lives, we, we're okay with that. But if our kids go south, Uh, We can't abide that. If If God's at the periphery, but our life is just super stressful or we're ill at the center, well, we can't abide that. And God says we've got it exactly backwards. He says it with the temple. If if you don't have access to God, this is what the temple makes visible. If you don't have access, free access to God, you have lost. Every other loss, every other tragedy is a dim, a dim approximation of that loss. 
We don't think that way. We don't feel that way. We don't live that way. But reality is that way, the temple teaches us. You know, we live our lives so often thinking that God is distant. He is not distant in the most important sense. We live our, and the temple reminds us of this. He's morally distant from us, but you know what? We live our whole lives in his presence. Right now, maybe you're a non-Christian, and you're thinking God is this, is this vast figure all the way out there. You know what? He is great beyond your wildest dreams. He is high and mighty. He is glorious beyond anything that you have ever thought of. Human language cannot carry the freight of God's greatness adequately. But you know, you know what the most amazing thing about him is? Is that in all of his transcendent glory, he's present right now in this room with you every single second of your life. Everyone leads a God-centered life because there is no reality of which God is not the center. The only difference is whether you're reconciled to him or whether you're estranged from him. You ever been around somebody who you knew? You ever been near to somebody who you knew was angry at you? And they're right there. Friends, if you are not in Christ, God is angry at you because of your sin. He's not disappointed in you. He is justly angry at you because of your sin and rebellion against him. And you are in his presence. And there is a distance between you of alienation and estrangement that you cannot fix. Only he can fix that. And the amazing thing about the temple, and and the only way, there's only one way that it can be fixed, the death of a substitute. The temple teaches us that. And so, friends, that's the gospel in outline, at least the bad news of the gospel. There's a crisis in your life, whether or not you woke up this morning acknowledging it. But the temple has been given to Israel, first to Israel and then to the world, to teach us that we live our whole lives in the presence of this holy God, that whether or not we acknowledge it, he is the great reality around which and in which we live and move and have our being, that he is the measure of absolutely everything. And we go on living our lives like he's this triviality. What could be more offensive to someone so glorious than that. But see, the temple has another storyline at the same time without in any way compromising the first one, and it's the storyline of paradise regained. This is the gospel's good news. This is what I love about the temple. This is what I love about the gospel. Just think about it. The very existence of the temple is evidence of God's saving intention toward the world. See, the temple was God's idea. It wasn't Israel's idea. Israel didn't wake up one morning and say, you know what, we're estranged from God. Here's what we do. We're going to build a temple. We're going to copy our pagan neighbors. We're going to build a temple. And then maybe God will be pleased with us. Temple was God's idea. He gave it first in the plans for the tabernacle. He gave it to Moses on the top of the mountain. 
And then when Israel had settled the land, it became a permanent structure that reflected the same structure as the tabernacle. It was God's idea. Friends, why would God give the temple? Why would he create a path? Why would he appoint priests? Why would he appoint sacrifices? Why would he want sinners to come and to smell the sweet aroma of a pleasing sacrifice rising to God? It's because there is another storyline on top of the other one. God's intention is not merely diagnostic. It is also healing. God doesn't just hand you the MRI and say, sorry about the spot. He says, let me heal you. And let me show you, let me teach you very patiently and very carefully and very meticulously about how this is going to be done. It's going to cost death. There's going to have to be a priest who's going to have to offer not just sacrifices of animals, but one day he's going to offer himself a perfect representative and substitute for you. This is the only way that I can continue to dwell in the midst of a sinful people. It's, but all the provision for approach to God, I mean, friends, we think it's stingy. We think the Day of Atonement is stingy you know, that the, only the high priest could go in. How come not the rest of Israel? We think that it's only sti- that God is stingy, that he only gives access on one day a year. Oh, friends, that, the only reason we think God is stingy is because we don't understand holiness. We don't understand sin. We don't understand how serious those things are. We judge them according to our sense of them. We do not submit our consciences to God's sense of them. So very patiently over centuries, God is teaching, 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 teaching about sin, about his holiness, about his desire to live in the presence of his people, about his intention to redeem, about a priest. Teaching, 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 teaching. Proving his heart, laying his heart bare. And we're going to see next week that Israel just basically squandered it all. Just like we do. My friends, the same God who is present in the temple and in your life and who was teaching uh, the promise of paradise regained that this God whom we lost through our sin and who through the very existence of the temple and all the sacrifices appointed in the temple is showing that he is the God who is willing to recover for us what we have lost by our sin, namely himself, that he's the one who recovers. We lost him, and he recovers himself for us. The God who was teaching that through the temple is the same God today. And he is willing and ready and able in Jesus Christ to save. But you have to come to him on his terms. He does not barter. He does not negotiate. He wants unconditional surrender. No buts. No compartmentalization. No partial gifts to God. You know why? Because the cross is God's unconditional, unlimited surrender of his son as the substitute for sinners. So the only way you can possibly receive that gift in authenticity, 
is to hold nothing back in surrendering to him. He's proved his goodness and your badness at the same time. Now trust him. But you know, when we look at the temple, we have to be very careful. Because the temple is not really the measure of God's true magnificence. It'd be very easy to look at the temple and say, oh, it's so beautiful. And the disciples are tempted to do that, aren't they? They, they, they say, Lord, what are you talking about? Look, look how awesome the temple is. And Jesus, Jesus knows what's going to happen to him. He remembers what he said in John chapter 2. He remembers that he has said that he is the temple. He knows that the disciples have forgotten the significance of that. He knows that he is actually the, the, the temple of God, that the building was just a sketch. And that, that this building, though, it was, though its design was accurate in the sense that it told the truth, it was also by design inadequate and incomplete. It did not, it could not, and it was never intended by God to be sufficient by itself. It was always intended by God's design to be an exercise in understatement. So as magnificent and as accurate as the temple's design was, the God-designed lesson of its architecture and beauty, it was always an understatement. The, the building the beauty of the building, the processes in the building, even the, even the holy of holies and the Shekinah cloud of glory, all those things were understatement. They, they were all true, but they were less than the whole truth in the sense that the, every one of those truths about God and his greatness and his glory and his goodness, the temple understated those things about the, the danger and peril and pollution of sin. The temple understated those things about the resulting estrangement between God and men because of man's sin. Friends, the temple understated those things about the only remedy required to restore men to fellowship with God. It was all true, but it wasn't, nor could it ever be, all the truth about these things. So let me show you what I mean. If you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 66, which is, uh, if you're looking at your pew Bibles, page 625. I just want to look at one verse with you. It's the last chapter of the book of Isaiah. And I hope this is, you probably know this verse, but thinking about it in this connection is, I think, helpful to get a sense of the scale. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. So right now, God just got very big. The earth, which is where all of human history plays out, is God's ottoman. 
And if that's true, if his true magnitude and his true glory is such that heaven is his throne, then his questions that follow in verse 1 are very reasonable. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? And essentially what he's saying is, are you kidding me? Did you really think that the temple in Jerusalem uh, fully fully housed me in the sense that it, it was the final word and last say about how truly glorious I was? My significance, that it, that it, that it adequately and fully displayed my glory? No way. The temple was inadequate. This is essentially what God is saying. The temple was inadequate, and it was understatement by my design. You who are men couldn't possibly make a temple adequate for my magnificence and my, mass, my massiveness. If heaven is my throne, the galaxies are the jewels in my crown. They are, they are just little adornments on my scepter. Now, I want you to think of the scales there. I want, you, I, want, I want you to ponder how big God must be if heaven is his throne. He's trying to expand our understanding of how glorious he is. You, you can't, men can't make a temple to contain him, which means, friends, deduction, men can't do things to control him. You cannot put him in an architectural box. You cannot put him in a figurative box. He is not a genie you can lock up in a bottle. If you, uh, if you heard a loud noise on Tuesday afternoon, it was my brain exploding. Because on Tuesday afternoon, I, I came across something on the web that was the description of this uh, study that has just been published. It's a study by a bunch of uh, astronomers from the University of Hawaii. And um, what they had done, what they were trying to do, what, okay, our galaxy is a Milky Way. Okay, just I'll start stuff you know. Okay, our galaxy is a Milky Way. And what they were trying to figure out is, well, where is our galaxy? In, they were trying to map the supercluster, which is the structure, uh, the larger structure of a bunch of galaxies that our Milky Way is part of. And so what they did in order to try to figure out the precise address of the Milky Way is they took 8,000 nearby galaxies. Now just boom, right? 8,000 nearby galaxies. And the closest one of those is Andromeda, and that one is 2.5 million light years from us. That's our next door neighbor. They took 8,000 of these galaxies and they, and they mapped their motion and their location. Now, what they, up to this point, before this study had been conducted, uh, astronomers believed that we were, our galaxy was part of a larger uh, supercluster called the Virgo supercluster that is 100 million light years across. That means nothing to you. Well, how about this equation? 100 million light years is this many miles. 100 million times 5 trillion. Now, that's what they thought. It's pretty big. But when they did this study, what they discovered, actually, is that the Virgo cluster is just this little part of a much larger structure. It's over 100 times larger, that, so that is 10 billion 
light years across. And they called this uh, supercluster Laniakea, which is Hawaiian for immeasurable heaven. Now, friends, that's just our neighborhood. So when God says, heaven is my throne, he is really big. And that 10 billion light years across, that's 10 billion times 5 trillion miles. On my computer, I couldn't do it. Couldn't do the math. So when God is that big, don't mistake the physical temple for the true measure of God's actual magnificence. When God declares that heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool, what he is intending us to do is to yield and submit to his conclusion that there is nothing that we can do by our work or our labors that would ever be adequate to state his full magnificence. We could never build a life on our own that would be worthy of him. We could never build a temple that would tell the full truth about him. Men cannot do this, but friends, God can. And God did. And that brings us to our second point, the fulfillment of the temple's design in Jesus Christ. In uh, March of 1997, I took our kids. It was one of the few sunny days uh, in Seattle uh, that year. And I took our kids uh, to the groundbreaking for Safeco Field. And I remember it like it was yesterday. And there we were in this parking lot with all these other nuts and, uh, that were just like me. And what the Mariners had done is they had, uh, they had marked out the dimensions. We were in this unpaved parking lot. That's what it was. And they had marked out in this unpaved parking lot where home plate was going to be and where the baselines were going to be and where the outfield fences were going to be. And you could, you, if you wanted to, you could stand in the batter's box and, and imagine what it would be like. The only time I'll ever get close to home plate at Safeco Field, by the way. And uh, you could stand in the batter's box and you could run the bases. And it was totally glorious and utterly unsatisfying at the same time. Because we understood that we were just looking at a drawing. We're just looking at a plan. We're looking at a blueprint, a schematic. None of us confused that outline in the parking lot for the coming stadium that it pointed us to. None of us did. So it wasn't good enough. Friends, what that parking lot sketch was to Safeco Field, the temple in Jerusalem was to the final temple of Jesus Christ. It described, it anticipated, it prepared for, it depicted, and it even rehearsed the great drama of the redemption that would come that would ultimately require God himself to come to an act out. Do you remember I said that the temple was more than a building? It was a drama. 
It was really the script for a drama. It was the dress rehearsal for a drama. Well, in Jesus Christ, God himself, the only actor who could fulfill what the temple taught, the only one who could do it, he finally came. Rehearsal was over. The script was done being read. And now God himself, the champion actor, came in Jesus Christ as the final temple himself. What men could never do, and what you and I can't do. You see, the the idea that you could build, the reason this is so relevant to us, friends, is because the idea that you could build a temple that would be adequate to God is exactly the same mindset that says, I'm a good person. I can live a good enough life. I don't need a savior. I'm not a great sinner. I don't need a great savior. It's exactly the same mindset. And God sends Jesus Christ in the world to demolish that way of thinking because that way of thinking will lead you into hell. And God is the, is the rescuer. What man could never do, build a temple that is the perfectly true and perfectly accurate and perfectly adequate measure of the living God's actual magnificence and worth. God did in Jesus Christ. And the wonder of the gospel, the scandal of the gospel, is that God did that among men as a man. Jesus Christ is himself the meaning for which the temple was designed and for which it existed, which means that it was not, which means that the temple itself was designed not only to be inadequate, but also one day obsolete. Now, this is really important. And I know it's late, but I, I, I need to say this. Because we are so often nostalgic. And God never is. God does not pine away for the bygone days. God is always moving his people forward. Men are nostalgic. We look back and say, oh, wouldn't it be great if there was a temple? And friends... There is any theology that calls itself Christian that imagines or desires or requires the rebuilding of a temple in Jerusalem is blasphemous. It's not just a little mistake. It's a total misreading of everything that God was doing in history. It is a dishonoring of Jesus Christ, who is the Word made flesh. He is the presence of God dwelling in the midst of his people. What was the temple? It was the place where God's presence dwelt in the midst of his people. It was the place where God gathered his people to himself. Friends, that place, that physical place, was meant to picture a person who is himself, Jesus Christ, God's presence dwelling in the midst of the world, who is the way, the truth, and the life. The place where God's people were gathered to him is a person. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He doesn't point to the way. He doesn't point to the truth. He doesn't point to the life. He is those things. The temple pointed to the way. The temple pointed to the truth. The temple pointed to the life, but it was none of those things. He 
He is the high priest who holds his priesthood by the power of an indestructible life. He is the substitutionary sacrifice given once for all to put away sins for all time. What the animal sacrifices could never do, and those, those, those who pine after the day when a temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem and animal sacrifices will begin, there is no possible way that that could be pleasing to God. Because God already offered the final sacrifice for his people in Jesus Christ. He put away sins for all time by that one offering. How did he do it by that one offering? Because it was what no other offering was, perfect. That is the only perfect thing. Jesus Christ is the only perfect thing ever given by a man to God. And unless you take shelter in that offering, you have no shelter. He is the final temple. So consider the magnificence, my friends, of the final temple of Jesus Christ. He is himself the fulfillment of the gospel. He is the gospel storyline. It's it's Jesus who teaches us. It's not until Jesus himself comes that we can really understand what paradise lost actually means or what paradise regained actually means. Think about it. The one who says in Isaiah 66, you want, to know, you want to know about God, friends, you want to know him, you have to look at that cross because that is the full truth about God. This is not the exception to God's glory. This is the culmination of his glory. This is where God reveals more of himself to the world than any other place, more than the Shekinah cloud in the temple. This is where the glory of God was at its peak. Friends, if you want to know God as he really is, you have to know that he was building his temple as he was being crucified. The God who said, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool, you know what he did? He started to build his temple in a virgin's womb. He became a fetus. This is how God is building. This is how the God who actually is, is showing us his magnificence. He makes himself small. He makes himself vulnerable. He, 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 he grows up under authority as a child, under the authority of sinful parents. He endures suffering and adversity. He lives through obscurity. With every breath he drew, with every beat of his heart, with every thought of his mind, with every effort of his hands and feet, and with every word he spoke, and with every emotion he felt, he was building the final temple. In all of his smallness, in all of the disregard and disrepute that he was willing to endure, what was he doing? He was a temple builder. He's building that temple. He's refining that temple. He's beautifying <clears throat> beautifying and decorating that temple, adorn. He set up his throne in human flesh. This is God. This is the God who is. This is the God in whose presence we live. And that God took that perfectly shaped, perfectly adorned, beautiful, magnificent temple that was the one temple that 
truly stated, not understatement, but accurately and fully stated the full truth about God. And then he put the capstone on it by his crucifixion and his resurrection. If you want to know God, that's God. Now, you see, it's very disruptive to our lives because what that means is that to image God and to love him means that the path in your life is going to lead down in order for it to lead up. This is going to set you on a trajectory in life that is totally different from the trajectory that the world teaches you, which is to go up. This is very disruptive. Jesus Christ is not going to make peace with the ways of the world that are in our minds. Because, friends, think about it. The one we lost because of our sin is the one who is willing to pay all the cost of our sin. That's God. That's the God of the gospel. That's what he does with the final temple. That's how we know the truth about the love of God that was willing to go to such lengths. That's how we know about the the holiness of God that could not over and would not, was unwilling to overlook our sin and in order to redeem us out of it, had to bring holiness down to the most granular level of what it means to be human in order to rebuild this temple for God's image in human flesh. Friends, this is Jesus Christ. This is the image of God. This is the one who calls you to God and who holds himself out to you as your dwelling place. I pray that you'll take shelter in him. Lord, I'm just so conscious that just as uh, human hands could not build um, a temple that told the the full truth about your magnificence. It's certainly true that human words cannot and, and most definitely my words cannot. And so I ask that you would forgive me for all my mistakes and errors. And I ask that you would help my friends here to latch on to what is true and good and accurate about you and that you would lead them to Jesus Christ as you do that. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.